0: This morning, if you would like, I invite you to turn with me in your Bible, if you have a copy of God's Word, to Second Peter chapter 3. So let's begin again, if we can, up in chapter 3, verse 3. This is the context, it's the key context uh, for us as we study verses 10 through 12 this morning. And I will uh, read through verse 13, beginning in verse 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, And the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, And a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing as we now seek to understand it. Well, God, you who are going to judge the heavens and the earth by fire. We ask this morning that by your gracious spirit here present with us, that you would not only open up your word to us and teach us about your day of judgment that's coming, but that your spirit would be active this morning in the hearts and minds gathered in this place, that you would sift and you would sort, that you would weigh and judge our plans, our loyalties, our lives, our hours, our energies, And that, God, you would bring them all in conformity to the reality of the truths we're going to learn this morning. And that we together might live the days that we have, the hours that we have. Living quiet lives, fulfilling our duties that you've given to us in our occupations and homes. But that in all of it, that we might live lives worthy of the reality of who you are. And the fearful and glorious things to come. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter is about to die. He is in prison. He is in Rome. He knows that he is going to be martyred as the Lord Jesus instructed him before the Lord ascended into heaven. Peter is an old man by now, and he's seen a lot. And he's lived long enough and seen the church grow enough, expanding from Jerusalem and going to the Gentiles into all of the known world in the Roman Empire at that time. And doubtless, he's been greatly encouraged as he's met believers, men and women like him, great sinners redeemed by the blood of Christ. He has seen great encouragement, but at this point he is alarmed and deeply concerned because by this time there are numerous false teachers who have arisen. They claim to speak on behalf of Jesus. They claim to have something new to offer to those who are believers in Jesus Christ but their lives are characterized by lawless living. They live and lead unrighteous lives. They abuse the grace of the Lord Jesus, of the gospel, and pervert it, both for themselves and for those who listen to them, into license to sin. They mock even the teaching of scripture concerning the things to come. They dismiss it. They speak of it in ways that Undermine the people's confidence in the teaching of Scripture. They embody and encourage the false teaching that here and now is about all that you can expect. And so get the most you can out of this little fleeting moment. They they write books like Your Best Life Now. And they lead tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of men and women to lead essentially godless lives they, they may speak of God they may speak of Jesus but they're not living in light of the God of the Bible the Lord Jesus who is to come and to judge the living and the dead this is Peter's concern and his heart is burning not merely for the truth and the maintenance of that truth because he doesn't have to worry about that what God has said will come to pass you don't have to defend the Bible. It defends itself. It is proven again and again and again. And the day is coming when every promise will be fulfilled and we will live forever as believers in Jesus Christ in awe of the Holy Scriptures, in every word given to a, by a prophet and by the apostles. We will be in awe of how accurate and how true God's word was and is and always will be. So what Peter's real concern is not to defend scripture per se, but to defend the hearts of these earnest and sincere believers. They're starting to be led astray. They're starting to grow weary of waiting for the Lord Jesus. They're losing their zeal for the scriptures and their belief in the promises of things to come. And so Peter is writing with a pastoral heart to stir them up and to stir us up to hold fast to the things spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by our apostles. We are to believe what the Bible says about the things to come. And yes, among earnest, sincere believers in Jesus Christ, we recognize after 2,000 years, there are some areas of difference and disagreement and we grieve over that sincerely. It's not something to laugh about, really. I I don't really joke too much about differences among believers. I mean I suppose I do sometimes. We have to, you know, a little bit, but the reality is we, we grieve. We recognize that we have fallen minds and that we have sinful hearts. And that even among believers, yes, there are differing opinions about some of these things. But we ought not to let those differing of opinions lead to a place where we essentially relegate up to a third of Scripture, which speaks of things to come, to somehow being unclear. We must study the Scriptures concerning these things. We must humbly examine them. And we must believe what God has spoken Deal graciously with brothers and sisters with whom we differ. Focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, but do not for a moment somehow let our hope and our love for the promises, hope in and love for the promises of Scripture, fade. This morning, Peter is writing about <clears throat> excuse me, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And we're going to look at two truths about the day of the Lord that Peter highlights in verses 10 through 12. But I really want to spend um, a bulk of this message just introducing some of you to even the truth, the concept. And for that, we need to go back. We need to do some, some homework. And so in this message, a lot of our initial uh, consideration will be background. We'll consider then come back to the text consider these two truths and close with considering what Peter's main heart is, is how do we live then? Let me start there. Peter is, and the Holy Spirit, is after our heart. He's not just after your mind. He's not just interested in you and I knowing a few facts about the Bible and the things to come. I I use this phrase, and I try to get a hold of, of men and women who have been lulled into a stupor by the age that we live in that really isn't interested in the things to come or or the idea that somehow jesus died so that we can just live our lives comfortably Uh, I, i put it this way the holy spirit intends to mess with your life your life yes that you know that life that you you have and you have plans for the hours that you have Make no mistake, the Lord Jesus does not save you and then say, carry on your way. (laughs) No, no, you are bought with a price. He owns you. You are his slave, his servant, and he intends and he means to have his holiness and his glory in some form, in some way, evident and manifest in your little life and in my little life. So that as we t- as come together as the church, as believers, that we evidence and witness to a godless, dark world, holy things, true things concerning the glorious kingdom to come. And so let's think for a few moments together about what the Bible has to say about the day of the Lord. And I can only have a, a brief introduction to this subject. It is a dominant theme of Scripture. And for some of you, or maybe sitting here this morning, it is. Yes, it's a dominant theme of Scripture. The very phrase, the day of the Lord or the day of Yahweh, is mentioned explicitly some 19 times in the Old Testament. But the phrase itself, though only mentioned 19 times, if you want an exact quote, the concept, that day, is referenced numerous times throughout the prophets. If you want to, you can turn with me for a moment to that little prophet, uh, the prophecy Zephaniah. And if you can't find it, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> let's see if I can find it. Zephaniah Haggai, Zechariah Malachi, and so it's toward the end of the Old Testament. Zephaniah This is just one example of many that describes this coming cataclysmic day of judgment upon this earth. In Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 2, God says through Zephaniah, I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. God did that through the flood. But as Peter has told us, that is not how God is going to judge the earth a second time. This time it's going to be a flood of fire. Verse 7, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord, or the day of Yahweh is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and has consecrated his gift, his guests he's going to punish evildoers on that day and then down to verse 14 for example near is the great day of Yahweh the Lord near and coming very quickly listen the day of the Lord in it the warrior cries out bitterly that warrior is the the wicked warriors the warriors of the armies of the godless nations A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord, and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath, and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. This one of numerous repeated references in the Scriptures to a great impending day of unprecedented wrath, fire, and judgment upon this world. And as Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. God doesn't have anything personal against the earth that he made or the heavens that he made but it is personal when it comes to countless men and women made in his glorious image. Generation after generation since the rebellion of Adam and Eve, personally defying God, personally dismissing and defying, disobeying his law, that's personal. Now is a day of patience and of forbearance, but the day is coming when that day of now of forbearance and patience and long suffering will end and God will unleash his wrath as it's never seen before upon this earth and upon the heavens God is gracious verse 9 of second Peter 3 the Lord is not slow about his promise but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish. We saw in Ezekiel, from Ezekiel chapter 33, that God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's not a bloodthirsty, out-of-control God. Perish the thought. He is holy, as we sang this morning. He is utterly the same yesterday, today, forever in his goodness, in his purity, in his loveliness, in his righteousness. You say, what's God's problem with sin? We've so forgotten God. Sin is so normal. We are so acclimated to it. It's such the norm. We are those who just have to live among it and live with it. What's, what's, what's the problem? The problem is that God is true. He's true. And our sin and all sin essentially declares that God is a liar his ways are false they're not good you know all those laws those commands his promises that he gave to adam and eve that he gave to all his people they're not true sin is open denigration of the glory and the goodness of god And God says in Isaiah, and this theme is throughout the scriptures, that He cannot do anything against His own glory. Because He is that good, because He is that true, He must, because of who He is, see that the truth is made known. And the truth is, the truth is, the truth is, He is God. You are not. I am not. We are not. And so sin is far more evil and wicked than we often make it to be. It is not innocent. Sin is not a mistake. Sin is not an oops. And you look at the culture around us and you see that the way that sin is ramping up, don't you see there's nothing innocent about it. Telling men that they aren't men, boys that they aren't boys, girls that they aren't girls, women that they aren't women, women. Saying that you can have sexual relations with whomever or whatever doesn't matter, doesn't have implications. It's all against God. His way, his design. The reality that he is our creator and this ugly defiance of God this unseemly sea of sin is one day going to be burned up in fire by God and this as I've said I think several times recently is the most neglected truth in the modern evangelical church who no one talks about the day of the Lord anymore. No one talks about the judgment to come, whether upon this earth or the judgment eternal, that is what the Bible calls hell. If we do talk about it in the evangelical church, we always kind of tiptoe around it. We always preface it with almost apologies. We are very uncomfortable. We try to ease the uncomfortable psyche of those who are listening. It's so offensive. It's so smacks, it seems to us, of of ignorant former days that we're almost embarrassed. Not Peter. Peter says... You, even as believers, he's writing to believers, these sincere believers, these are beloved believers who have sincere minds, chapter 3, verse 1. He's writing to tell them, you believers need to live your life now in light of the realities of the day of the Lord. Now, we should be comforted that as Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 2, we as believers do not need to be quickly shaken or alarmed to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. God has not destined us for wrath, Paul will say. We do not who are in Christ need to fear judgment for our sins have been judged in Christ on the cross. Praise God. But the God by whom we are saved is the God who will have this day. The Jesus who is the king and the savior that we trust in is the king who will come and slay the wicked by the sword of his mouth. He's the one pictured vividly there in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 61 and 62 in that section there, he's, he's this one who's covered. His garments are stained with blood because he is carrying out the judgment of God. I wonder, I'm just going to pause right now. I wonder, I don't know, I have no idea, but I wonder in this room, I wonder, wonder how hearts are receiving this. I heard hellfire and brimstone today. We, are, are, you, are you dismissing this even now? Don't do it. Don't do it. This isn't my idea. This is the clear teaching of the word of God. The day is coming, and it is a day of wrath, a day of darkness, a day of judgment. For all those apart from Christ who are alive at that time, it will be a day of doom. For those who are believers in Jesus Christ... It is even a dark day in the sense of it brings about fear and trembling, but it is a good day in that finally those who persecute those believers in Christ will be judged. Finally, those who have been martyred will be vindicated. In that way, the day of the Lord is a good day for the Lord's people, but it is an awesome day, a fearful day, a day the thought of which we should tremble. And we should fear the God to whom that day belongs, who will execute his judgment upon this earth. The cross of Christ provided atonement for all who will trust in Christ. But for those who part from Christ, there will be no place to hide. There will be no hole, there will be no cave. Your gold and your silver as Zephaniah uh, wrote will not save you, technology will not save God is the one that men will not be able to flee from. this day of the Lord is not a mere twenty four hour day. It is clear that it speaks of a of a of a concept of a of a a moment a, a reality in history it is a single truth that is the day of the Lord it's it's in contrast to what you might call now the day of men it's not as though God is not God right now but right now God is letting little rebellious man have his day men and women live their lives heedless to God and it seems that God is distant it seems that God is far off It seems, as the mockers say, that all things carry on as the way they always have been. You might call these the days of sinful men and women. The day of the Lord, in contrast, is the day when that time when God will bring this present rebellion to a screeching halt. It had various installments. In Joel's day, Joel was the earliest prophet to speak of the coming day of the Lord, and he spoke immediately of a plague of locusts that would come upon Israel and Judah. And we think, oh, what's the big deal, little bugs? Unless you have no supermarkets, you have no, uh, you have no ability to provide food other than the crop that's standing in the field and hanging on the trees. And if a plague of locusts comes and strips every piece of vegetation so that there's nothing left and you're about to enter winter you're now facing the prospect of watching your family literally starve to death. So there was an early installment of the day of the Lord in in Joel's day, but that was just a foreshadowing. The judgment of Israel in the north by the Assyrians and their overthrow, the overthrow of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 586, these were but foreshadowings, early installments of the coming judgment of the Lord. The fullest expression of the day of the Lord is yet to come. The Apostle Paul and Peter in this text, chapter 3 of 2 Peter, are explicit that the day of the Lord, this cataclysmic judgment, is yet in the future. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 3, Let no one in any way deceive you, for the day of the Lord has not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. That's the ultimate Antichrist. That is that that little horn, that figure that God revealed to Daniel. We may have questions about the details, but this is plain. This is clear that in the last days, a satanically inspired, demonically indwelt individual is going to rise up and to rule over this world as though he were Christ. And it is after that Antichrist, that final Antichrist is revealed during the early part of the seven-year tribulation, it is sometime after that period that the day of the Lord, this cataclysmic judgment, will come culminating in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth at the close of after the seven-year tribulation. It is he who will ultimately cause the slaughter of the wicked. Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that day is yet to come. Fearfully, during that tribulation period, after the revealing of the Antichrist, but both here in 2 Peter and elsewhere, it also is revealed that the day of the Lord will ultimately include a burning up of the present earth and the heavens. And in Revelation chapter 21, it is after the nations of the earth gather to, against Jerusalem and the people of Israel. It's after that that John the disciple the apostle of Christ he says i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away how did they pass away by the fire of god revelation is clear that christ will come he will enter into the into judgment against the armies that have gathered against jerusalem They will come, according to Joel chapter 3, verse 12, to the valley of Jehoshaphat. The armies of the world during the tribulation will gather under the leadership of the Antichrist and come with the intent to exterminate the Jewish people once and for all and to annihilate their city, Jerusalem. Zechariah chapter 14, chapter 12 is clear as to what will happen when they uh, they come and there will be a massive battle and finally the lord jesus christ himself will enter into the battle by the way as an aside that, that gets very strange if you there want to say that the israel in that passage is is the church today because it says that a third then of the church will be slaughtered um so that seems to conflict with what with what the apostle paul teaches in second thessalonians you get really confused if you don't keep israel clear as a historical ethnic national reference and we shouldn't be surprised because even in our day the most hated nation on earth that would be annihilated this week if god did not restrain evil nations is the nation of israel as yet still unrepentant, as yet still far from God, as yet still under God's judgment. But the day is coming when God's going to renew his dealings with Israel, and part of that will be bringing them to the point of repentance through their being threatened with utter extinction because of the armies assembled around the city. Then the Lord Jesus will come, Revelation is clear that there will be a thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth, a blessed kingdom, a blessing of the earth and the current earth and the current heavens. He will renew this earth, but at the close of the millennium, why don't you turn there with me so you see that I am not making this up. Revelation chapter 20, at the close of that thousand-year period, verse 7 of Revelation 20, Satan, who will have been bound by God for a thousand years, will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. During the millennial kingdom, there will apparently be men and women still be married, still having children. And there will, after this thousand years, apparently be a vast portion of who even under the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ in a renewed earth have yet resent God. Why is that? I I can only surmise that it's a demonstration of the true deception and wickedness of the human heart. Even under near perfect conditions, men and women by nature, apart from God's grace, hate God. And so Satan will find a willing following and he will gather them for war, verse 8. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Verse 9, they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. That's Jerusalem. That would be the capital city of the Lord Jesus Christ on this present earth. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beasts and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So there's an unfolding of the hour of judgment, the day of the Lord. It is a It is, speaks of a reckoning of God at the close of the tribulation with the coming of Christ, and then at the close of the millennium, when God, that fire that will come down upon the earth, presumably it is that very fire that then God will use his very holy fire to utterly consume this present earth and the heavens. And as Second Peter chapter 3 tells us, verse 12, the elements themselves of the earth and the heavens will melt with intense heat. This is not um, a surface burn. This is not a field or forest fire. This is more akin to a nuclear disintegration, and there is debate among godly theologians as to whether this will be a, an absolute complete disintegration of the current cosmos, or whether this, this is a burning that burns the present earth down to its most basic elements. And, and in other words, this is a complete um, purging of the present earth and heavens. Personally, I don't feel I need to weigh into that debate because I don't think there's a huge difference. The key is, and it was alluded to uh, or spoken of in Zephaniah, is that God will burn up the ungodly and every vestige of remembrance of ungodliness. Why will he burn up the current heavens? Because men and women worshipped those heavens and those stars. Why will God burn up the mountains and the seas? Because God and men and women, godless men and women, made those mountains and those seas into gods and goddesses. Why will he burn up the cities and even the ruins down to the most basic? Why will he purge it all? Because godless men and women made in the image of God As Romans 1 says, deny their creator and worship the created. God will purge from his presence every iota, every instance of vague memory of the idolatry and blasphemy of mankind. So whether it's a complete disintegration or a a burning down to what is absolutely elemental, You can have your debate. The important thing is not the physics. It's the spiritual realities. God is for the new heavens and the new earth. You will have a new earth and a new heavens in which there is not the slightest thing that reminds you or haunts you of the past. That's not true anywhere on earth right now. If we knew, like God, how much innocent blood had been shed, let's just say within our county, Merrimack County, if we knew every location where men and women had been abused or boys and girls had been abused, where men and women were murdered, we would be walking around on this ground with disgust because we would be aware at nearly every step here is a place where wretchedness has been done there are some places where in modern memory that is true concentration camps in Europe like like Dachau you walk into those places and I've been into one of those concentration camps And you understand that you're walking in a place where nearly every square inch has tears and blood on it. It's a place that no matter how you might put flowers out front, it reminds you of the evil and the wickedness that went on here. This present earth and this current cosmos is like that for God. And so he will purge it, he will burn it, in his wrath, in the holiness, in the purity of his holiness. I've jumped ahead to my two points. Here they are. Let's get back to Second Peter chapter 3. It is, a, it is a sweeping subject, the day of the Lord. And you can just study this on your own. You have a study Bible or a reference, and if you want any help, I'd be glad to help you. You can just read through the various scriptures that speak of the coming day of the Lord. The first point this morning that Peter wants us to know is this, the day of the Lord will come suddenly and unexpectedly. Suddenly and unexpectedly. Expectedly. He says in verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Come like a thief. This this isn't hard to understand. Um, A thief doesn't walk up in broad daylight. The thief doesn't call you up or text you and say, hey, I'd like to rob your house. Does next week, like Wednesday, say one o'clock in the morning work for you? The whole point is that the judgment of God will come upon this rebellious earth suddenly and unexpectedly. And we think, how can that be? I mean, if you read the book of Revelation and if straightforwardly, if you think of the church being raptured, there being a seven-year tribulation, You, you read in Revelation of the kind of cataclysmic things that are going to go on even in the early part of the tribulation. You think, how could possibly the reality of the coming judgment of God slip the minds of people who are still alive? Answer, just like right now, billions of people breathe air, look at what they look at, enjoy the grace of God, and live as though there is no God. It's really not that hard Jeremiah, for, for sinful men. Jeremiah 17, verse 9, God there declares, The heart of man is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. It really won't be that hard for deceptive hearts by the millions and billions at that time to so disregard the scriptures that even though God has told openly the unfolding of history, they will dismiss it. And so the the hour of judgment, when the day of the Lord will begin to be unleashed, will come like them, like a surprise. Another answer is not only the deception of the human heart, it deceives itself, but we of course know that there is a deceiver in this world and his name is satan and he is the wannabe god small g of this world paul calls him the god of this age the god of this age satan and he says in second corinthians chapter 4 verse 4 that the god of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of christ So between the deceptiveness of the human heart and the deceiving of Satan, who is very powerful, men and women living in that day before the coming day of the Lord, they will not know. The false teachers are insulting God in so many ways. But one of the ways they're insulting God is they're saying, "Hey, look around. We don't see anything different." I mean, it doesn't look like God is really planning to do anything. And it's insulting to God because it's insinuating and assuming that God is like us. Like he kind of has to work up his energy reserves. He has to build up his his weapons and he, you know, he has to take a long time? Not so with God. God can unleash his day of wrath in a moment. He he doesn't need to save up his energy. He doesn't need to rest up. It will come suddenly and frighteningly. The day of the Lord will come suddenly and unexpectedly upon ungodly men and women. Secondly, this morning, it's just these two truths that Peter is really wanting to highlight about the day of the Lord. Secondly, Peter tells us that the heavens and the earth will pass away and I've already spoken of this a bit but he says in verse 10 the heavens and earth heavens will pass away with a roar you can't imagine the roar of the earth being in heavens being burned up by the fire of the Lord some of you know what it is in, in the winter time to on a cold day if you have a wood stove and uh, you've got some dry wood in there and, and it's really hot you open up that stove door and you start to hear a, a roar you hope it doesn't turn into too much of a roar because then you've got a chimney fire but you understand the, the roar of a fire <laughs> uh, someone in my household has a particular dislike for hot air balloons and uh, she uh, one of the reasons why she doesn't like it is as a little girl the roaring of that, that fire that heats up the balloons would go over her house and it was the roar of it. We cannot fathom the roar of the fire, the sound of that fire that will destroy the current heavens and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. It does seem to inclined towards the total disintegration of all things but again the idea here is a complete purging a purifying the earth and its works will be burned up and again in case there was any doubt verse 12 the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat fire and heat Peter's pastoral intent is not that we be caught up with, again, the physics or the timing. His point is, in light of the fearful reality of the judgment of God unleashed upon this earth and coming soon, what ought we to, What sort of people ought we to be? Verse 14... We ought to be found in him spotless and blameless. Verse 11, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? We who are in Christ will not experience this fiery wrath of God upon ourselves. Christ bore the fiery wrath of God due our sins in himself, in his person, on the cross. And he cried out, it is finished. We do not fear, as those who are in Christ, the wrath to come. We're saved. We're saved. We won't be singed. We won't be hurt. We won't be burned. We are in Christ. Praise God. We are saved from the wrath to come. That's the essence of what saved means. And this God... Is the God we are saved to serve and to worship? This God, the very same God who will unleash his wrath and his fire upon this earth. And let me ask you this morning is this the God we pray to? Is this the God that you and I are living for this week? Is this the God before whom we are ordering our lives, our hours, and our steps? Is this the God before whom I am speaking whenever I speak? When I, before whom I am living whenever I do what I do? Because this is the only God. You can make up another one if you want. You can take from false teachers a modified God that has no fire, that has no day of judgment. You can make him up, but that is no God the only one and true living God is a God who will have his day. And it is a day of fire and darkness and gloom. This is your God, believer. We don't fear the wrath, but all we in insanity, fear with a loving fear, this holy God. Who is so holy that he will literally burn up and consume with fire every last vestige of even the semblance of reminder of all that is opposed to him and contrary to his ways. It is time for us To live for this God. And to live for him is not impossible. It is all done in grace. Turn back with me in closing to chapter 1. I say it again. I say this frequently in different ways. The gospel is not... The good news of Jesus Christ is not that God has changed. You've got to take that in. That's the false gospel that's been peddled by so many preachers today. It's a lie from the pit of hell because God who is God does not change. The gospel is that God changes you and me, but firstly, he changes the record of the debt, sin debt, that you and I have against him. That's the gospel. He changes the record of offense against him that you have and I have. And he changed it by pinning nailing that debt that sin to the cross in the person of his son that's the gospel is that he has dealt with your sins in Christ and then he changes you gives you a heart to trust his promise and to believe in Christ and what he's done But he's the same God. Same awesome God who is our loving father. And in light of that, how ought we to live? We ought to live righteous lives. God desires, verse 2, grace and peace to be multiplied to his people. He loves you. And he gives you everything, gives me everything, verse 3, pertaining to life and godliness. And that by his precious and magnificent promises, verse 4, we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So what do we do? Applying all diligence, verse 5, in our faith supply moral excellence. There's a whole generation of Christians that don't apparently believe that God doesn't care anymore about whether you or I obey his law. That's another lie from the pit of hell. You're not saved by obeying his law, but he's your king. We are to apply all diligence, supply moral excellence, and moral excellence knowledge, knowledge of God and his ways, self-control, self-control perseverance, perseverance godliness. That is, I live a life toward God. Brotherly kindness, verse 7 brotherly kindness, love. And part of what motivates this is the reality that we serve a God who is going to consume the present heavens and earth. Which is so different than what I hear coming out of the mouths of most Professing Christians today. So many have been duped into thinking, well, I, I do it because it's good for me, helps my relationships. Uh, sh- sure. But, dear friend, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ makes you right with this God who will burn all things up with his holy fire. That's the first relevant and practical point. And then he calls you to live for him, to worship him, to serve him and adore him. May God help us to live lives of godliness unto him. Let's pray. So we pray for this, O God, and we ask your forgiveness to the extent that we have forgotten who you are and belittled the reality of the judgment to come. Help us to love you, fear you, and love and obey your ways until Jesus comes. Amen.